You're listening to Two for Tea, a podcast produced in association with Ario Magazine. I'm your host, Iona Italia. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. For early access to episodes, support us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash tea. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Brett Hall. I actually don't know how to describe you, in fact, Brett. So I'm going to ask you unusually because um, I thought of you as a philosopher, but when I described you that way in an essay I wrote, um, you recently told me that you don't consider yourself a philosopher. Um, I, You have a very, very thorough and um, expansive um, blog and um, podcast. I mean, to call them a blog and podcast is a little bit of an understatement. Um, really, it's like an entire educational uh, resort, a huge educational resource on philosophy and I guess history and philosophy of science. Um, uh, how would you describe yourself? I was asked this once before on a podcast interview that I gave, and the best I could do was give what I'm calling the Popperian answer, which is not to tell you what I am, but what I'm not. I (laughs) trained in physics initially, but I'm not a physicist. I didn't get a PhD in physics. I didn't go into research physics. I also did philosophy at university as well, but again, no PhD, didn't go into research philosophy. I sort of focus on the philosophers that I'm interested in and largely ignore everyone else. I've taught physics and I've taught chemistry and I've taught mathematics and I've taught the theory of knowledge epistemology, but I'm not a teacher anymore either. So what I do now is I write a blog, I have a podcast that I run, and I'm really interested in the foundations of knowledge, the deepest theories that we have, and to try and explain the importance of progress and the importance of error correction and maintaining this capacity of ours in the Enlightenment tradition to continue to make rapid progress. I think it's the most important thing that we can do as a civilization. And so, therefore, I'm in the fortunate position of trying to promote this message, so to speak, uh, evangelize about uh, these ideas, the fundamental ideas of physics, epistemology, philosophy, although I can't really identify myself as being a member of any of those professions, so to speak, not a professional philosopher, not a professional physicist, just a lay person with a lot of enthusiasm for these subjects. I guess a kind of science communicator and a philosophy communicator. Yes, well, yes, when I was at university as well, I I, I did have the job of science communicator at the University of New South Wales. So I did do that uh, semi-professionally for a little while anyway. Um, But again, a lot of my stuff, so to speak, a lot of my podcasts aren't really, some of them are about explaining the science, but it goes into that grey area between 
pure science um, and things like philosophy and epistemology to try and tease out the links between these things, which I'm really, really interested in. I, I'm a strong proponent of the idea that knowledge is a unified whole, but there are these convenient ways of dividing things up. So I'm reticent to call myself a science communicator, I suppose, because so much of what I do really isn't science either, but I'm happy mm, to, to, mm. to wear any label that people like to put on me. Okay. <laughs> um, I was quite surprised, actually, having not heard about your work before, how many people, when I said I was interviewing you, how many people know about it and uh, listen to and read your stuff. Uh, it's, uh, it's clearly a, a very important resource for a lot of people, and it was extremely, extremely helpful to me. So I guess um, let's uh, let's dive into the ideas, and I'd like to begin somewhere um, kind of simple, but I think uh, something that is one of my my particular obsession, and which I think might allow us to dive into some of the central uh, pop Popperian ideas, and um, we can talk about what you mean by Popperian, what's most important in Popper's thought, but. Uh, and that's free speech. So I'm um, editing a book collection on free speech at the moment, as some people will know. And I am, uh, there are a number of arguments in favor of free speech. This isn't the only one, but one of the, the arguments for best arguments for me is that free speech gives us a better chance of knowing the truth about things, of approaching the truth about things. And, um, because we are able to generate more ideas, to share more ideas, and to have our own ideas exposed to more pushback and critique. I'm one of the few people who, who kind of like Twitter for this, because I also think that on Twitter, although there's a lot of crap there too, one thing you do find is whatever idea you express will get a lot of pushback, and that can be very helpful. And I also think that it's important, you've got to start from having a sense of what people are actually thinking and feeling um, in order to discover um, truths about the world. If you make people lie and you, uh, by um, not allowing them to express certain uh, thoughts or feelings, then you get a more and more inaccurate view. And I've been, um, I'm really often told that this is a naive um, view that. And in fact, uh, when I talked to uh, Massimo Piliucci on this podcast, uh, he rebuked me for naivety. And he said um, that given the amount, the sheer amount of um, spam and um, also misinformation that is out there now, to think that free speech could be a uh, tool for generating knowledge is naive, and it could be just as likely, in fact, more likely that um, by exchanging more and more ideas, we could go further and further into error instead of towards truth and moral improvement. Um, what's your view <laughs> and why? Yeah, so free speech is one of our traditions in the Enlightenment that it is very important for us to preserve. The fundamental reason is that it is an error-correcting mechanism. We should not destroy the means of error correction. And this is an important link between morality and epistemology that David Deutsch has highlighted in the beginning of infinity amongst many of the gems that are in there. 
This is a really new discovery. Hitherto, I don't think that anyone has really underscored this particular link between these two domains that are normally treated entirely separately. Morality, the idea about or ideas about what we should do, and epistemology, what we can know and how we go about coming to a better understanding of reality. You talk about truth and I emphasize more the idea that what we're trying to do is eliminate falsehoods. And of course, that is basically the same idea as searching for the truth. But the difference is that in many other epistemological frameworks, if you like, their idea is that the aim of the entire project is to get to the truth or get to probable truth, something like that. But the Popperian framework is not to so much aim for that final truth, because we don't think that that is possible. Instead, the best that we can hope for, and it's a wonderful thing, is to correct errors along the way, because that is an unending, unbounded process, that we will always encounter new problems, we will always encounter new errors, and the way in which we can continue to have progress is to focus on identifying where the errors are and correcting them. Free speech is so important because it is one such mechanism that allows for this. So you say that someone said that, well, uh, free speech might be the thing that introduces errors. There is no such thing as a state where we will not have errors, where we'll not be surrounded by errors, where no matter in which direction we look, we will find that our knowledge is imperfect. So yes, every time we solve a problem, every time we correct an error, we will find more errors. But the thing is, they're better errors. And this is the way in which we can explain the slow ratcheting up of progress that we've seen over the millennia and particularly over the last few centuries. The reason why this has happened faster in some places than others is because there have been these traditions, call it in the West, call it in the Enlightenment, call it in the countries that descended from primarily Britain and to a lesser extent continental Europe, these countries passed on traditions about how to make progress, a very difficult and hard-won set of ideas that have informed the ways in which nations across the world now and civilizations across the world now try to emulate. Now, insofar as they do it imperfectly, their progress is slower. Our progress has been the most rapid that has ever happened because we have this open-ended means of creating knowledge through error correction. And free speech has to be preserved because it is one of the primary means by which we can identify the errors. We can tell each other, hey, there's a problem over there, or perhaps this is going to cause an issue. We need to be able to talk about what might be the problems. And the thing about the problems are they are unforeseeable. We don't know what problem's going to come up next. The, the progress that we make, we don't know what direction it's going to take. And so we have to be able to take, um, we have to be able to take every opportunity to speak about the problems that might be coming towards us. And because we cannot predict the growth of knowledge, that's an epistemological law. We can't know the content of our future theories. We must therefore be able to talk about anything. And if we start to take things off the table, out of all the problems that we might have, I call this actually the master problem. The master problem is slow progress. Everything else is, is peanuts by comparison. Every other particular problem that people are worried about, well, the mere fact that we can name them, that's a good thing. We're making some progress. We can say, oh, we're worried about the AI apocalypse or we're worried about catastrophic climate change. At least we can name it. 
I'm very, very worried about the things we don't yet know about. And if we start to take things off the table by saying oh, free speech might not be a good idea, it might introduce error, then it might be the case that we hide from our capacity to speak about the problem that's really going to do us in. Mm, that's that's very interesting. I think that that ties into some of the critiques you had of um, uh, Martin Rees's ideas about the the big problems that are facing us. So I recently read Toby Ord's book, The Precipice, um, and we had a, a review article on that on Ario, which I'll I'll link to in the show notes. And for those who don't know, this both Reese and Ord are looking at the chances of complete um, disaster and annihilation of uh, basically humanity um, within our century. And um, Ord's view is that we've we've reached a precipice. We've reached a point at which there are many possible ways in which we might be kind of annihilated and we need to sort of we need to weigh up which are the most probable and uh, put time and energy into uh, tackling those so he sees those kinds of possibilities as um i think he thinks the most um uh, the most likely one is a bioengineered pandemic and then other other possibilities are also um that nuclear um, all-out nuclear war and um, um, an asteroid strike, for example, an asteroid strike or um, the singularity, the intelligent AI paperclip maximizer, which wipes all of us out. Um, so uh, I think that you, um, I know that you have a very different take on um, on this do you want to run us through that? Yeah, well, it's the prevailing view now, isn't it? I mean, uh, people make entire careers, uh, run entire podcasts, uh, have uh, the ability to stand up in front of, you know, TED uh, audiences and uh, get speaking engagements, all based on listing the many ways in which we can destroy ourselves. Now, I tend to think that our fascination with this and the reason why people are so engaged with any of these particular problems is a similar reason to why we love disaster movies. They're exciting. They're thrilling. We want to hear about uh, what might go wrong with nuclear weapons. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not dismissing these ideas, none of them. They're all very serious and we need to pay attention to them. But the prescription from rather too many people, especially when it comes to things like the AI apocalypse, let's say, is that the underlying message is that we need to have some sort of constraints on knowledge production. We need to slow down progress in some way. And again, catastrophic climate change is another example of that, where people are concerned that technologies that we have right now are exacerbating the problem. That when it comes to something like, I, I think there was a person on Twitter who asked us a question about the idea that, well, what about people who might gain access to uh, being able to build a nuclear weapon at home? You know, the, these concerns, any of these named concerns, so long as they're not natural disasters, things like, you know, the, the asteroid that's coming from out of the sky, but there's an important relationship here between problems that seem to be caused by our advances in knowledge, like homemade nuclear weapons like uh, the the AI apocalypse that might be coming, and natural disasters, 
All of them are to do with whether or not we know how to solve the problem in time. And so the solution to all of them is quite the opposite to what many, many people prescribe. It is not slowing down progress, not being concerned about the rate of progress. It is to increase the rate of progress. Because as I said earlier, the master problem that lurks beneath all of these is a slowing of progress. And many academics and intellectuals and people talking in this space are prescribing a kind of slowing of progress so that our morality, sometimes I speak about this, is able to catch up to our technology is often the way they put it. But I would never guard against knowledge production in any area at all. Now, I might guard against technology that we already have. That's a separate issue. I don't think everyone should have access to a nuclear weapon, but that's not an, not an issue of knowledge production as such. And it's not feasible anyways at the moment. It's an edge case we can talk about if and when that situation arises. And on that precise point, the if and when it arises, I think is so important because the people who focus on this, on the problems known, but not yet exactly encountered, uh, the, the truly catastrophic climate change, the, the AI apocalypse, the nuclear winter, the asteroid impact, the, the, the large hadron collider singularity that consumes the planet. Name your exciting science fiction ending of civilization. I think they all actually undersell the danger to some extent, the people who talk about here. They don't undersell the danger of those particular problems. I think they oversell the danger of those particular problems. What they undersell the danger of is enacting policies that would curtail the possibility of finding out how those things could actually be accomplished by us. Because to solve any of these problems, to solve the AI you know, apocalypse, we need to know how to make ever better AI first before that can ever happen. But they want to avoid making better AI for fear that the AI apocalypse would come. Uh, repeat for homemade nuclear weapons. But the problem is if we slow knowledge production, we become what we have trouble escaping from, which is a static society. And a static society, a society which makes slow to no progress, is a guarantee of extinction, an absolute guarantee of extinction, never mind AI or asteroids or homemade nuclear weapons. It's the things not yet known that will kill us all. Because we will never have a chance of seeing it coming because we're not looking and we're not looking because there are regulations in place about what we're not allowed to look at or what we are allowed to look at but but isn't of much use to us, like anything except whatever leads to homemade nuclear weapons. So you can look at anything except what might lead to to, to ever more intelligent AI. But it does not need to be this way because we can know about any problem in time with more rapid progress. So as I say, that's our biggest problem, to, to have more rapid progress, not slower progress. We're the good guys. I really want to emphasize that. We are the good guys. And if we don't find out how to do these things, to avoid these things, these, these terrible things that, 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 that the intellectuals list one, one after another, the, the, the terrible pandemic that's coming, the catastrophic climate change, if we don't figure out how to avoid these things, or how to do these things in some cases, like the homemade nuclear weapon, then someone else will. So we actually need to understand what it takes to build homemade nuclear weapons. Not so that each of us have one necessarily, but so we not know what to do about them should other people get them and something go wrong. Like I say, we're the good guys. Our culture has error correction at the heart of it. In some distant future, I can imagine homemade nuclear weapons, but also I can imagine a light speed system for like detecting 
critical masses of fissile material which would switch off detonation that isn't authorised. So if someone can imagine the far-out catastrophe, I can imagine the solution. But we need to get there before the bad guys do. And there are bad ideas out there, which is really, really what I mean by bad, bad, bad guys. So the bad ideas is what I'm really worried about. Or at least the bad ideas causing people to uh, uh, not be like us. Those bad ideas are a risk and the people motivated by them are a risk. People talk about pressing concerns, and there are specific things to be concerned about. You've listed some. I've listed a whole bunch here, and the intellectuals spend a lot of time listing them. But the most pressing concern, I'll repeat again, is the rate of progress, how fast we are generating new knowledge and new explanations. That is the factor that limits everything else, and that is what puts a horizon, a true horizon on civilization. Right, because we need to have, we need to have sufficient knowledge to be able to tackle the challenges that come in the future the unknown challenges that we mm-hmm. can't predict. Yes. Yes, and, and we're surrounded by error, of course, moral error, epistemological error, scientific error. And we can imagine all the ways – I think I was saying this recently – we can readily imagine all the ways in which things can go wrong. And one reason that it's easy is just a matter of logic. It's, it's far easier to imagine the problem than the conjunction of the problem and the solution. Imagining the problem's kind of the easy part. I can imagine the asteroid coming. The hard part is imagining the solution. And so the thing is we, we have to remember that being becoming pessimistic because we're confronted by these problems is the wrong attitude to have. And pessimism leads to regulations, leads to um, committees uh, having concerns about the rate of progress and, and what corporations might be doing and, and this kind of thing and uh, uh, whether or not we're going to um, cause uh, changes to the climate, changes to the planet. But any regulation, any law such as against free speech, any means which slows down the rate of error correction is slowing down the rate of progress and is going to cause us to be in a position which is less powerful, less wealthy, such that the, the problem that we haven't yet encountered is going to come up behind us before we notice it and wipe us out, or is going to be of such a magnitude that we're going to be too puny, too lacking in wealth, too lacking in power in order to counter it. Mm, thank you. Yeah, I was thinking as you were saying that, that things that uh, we previously thought of as being acts of God Against which there was, we were completely defenseless, have proven to be tractable problems given greater knowledge. So, for example, um, a friend of mine actually got uh, syphilis. Um, and, uh, you know, back in the 19th century, um, so many, so many famous, uh, well known artists and writers, um, died in terrible agonies from syphilis after, um, first going mad. Um, and for a while, syphilis, the only treatment was to give people with late stage syphilis, deliberately in- infect them with malaria. Um, and, uh, which is a really strange side note of history. But now, uh, so he came to the doctor, he had syphilis, he took antibiotics for two weeks, and that was the end of that. So that's, uh, and that would have been kind of in- inconceivable 200 years ago. So we are really, um, I mean, what we consider to be a problem that is insolvable, maybe just insolvable to us because we don't yet know what the solution is. Precisely. I mean, as um, 
uh, David Deutsch has uh, said in, uh, again, the beginning of infinity, it's not that, you know, the, the early physicists um, wondered about, you know, go back, going back to the, the early 1900s, it's not that they were worried about something like nuclear war. It's that they, no one in the civilization could possibly even conceive of nuclear war because there was no such thing as nuclear physics you know, go back two centuries or something like that. So this is the situation we're in now. There are going to be the analogues of whatever the people in the, let's call it the 1800s, would have thought about nuclear war. Uh, There's an analogue of that for us now. Who knows what it is? We can't imagine it. By definition, we can't even begin talking about it. But eventually we'll find out what that thing is, that technology, that bit of science, that problem that's out there, that is simply inconceivable today because of the state of scientific knowledge right now. And the only way that we are going to, again, as I keep on harping on about, the only way that we're going to be able to counter that problem is by getting there first as the good guys. I keep on saying the good guys. By good guys, I mean absolutely anyone who shares the worldview of trying to solve problems through a free association of people who can create wealth in the most rapid way possible and speak about absolutely anything that they wish to, researching more or less anything that they wish to in order to aim for a better, more prosperous, more wealthy, more moral, more scientifically uh, enlightened, uh, more philosophically enlightened world. That's what we want. We want to escape from uh, the static societies that we all descended from. And, and, and more fully embrace this idea of a dynamic society, a society that is rapidly able to solve the problems, not merely of now, not merely of now, which is another thing I keep harping on about, but the problems of tomorrow that we don't yet know about. You know, obviously, mm-hmm. things like uh, nuclear war, things like uh, artificial intelligence, uh, in a sense, have always been there as potential problems, but we didn't know about them until we understood the science and technology and in some cases the philosophy underpinning these ideas as well. Once that was discovered, then the problem was brought into view and it's then that you Mm. can find the solution. As we like to say, problems are inevitable. There's no way of escaping this, this, this circumstance that we're in except, as we say, through death. Death is the only unproblematic state. It's then that you no longer have any problems, and we want to avoid that state. That's not a good state (laughs) to be in. (laughs) Yeah, I was thinking with regard to the nuclear thing that uh, one of the ironies is that uh, when I was growing up, that was our our greatest fear was nuclear war. Uh, When I was was a teenager in in my early 20s, in the 80s, and at the same time, uh, and also there was a lesser but pretty serious fear of um, nuclear power, um, fallout and nuclear ac- accidents at, at power plants, etc. Um, and now, in fact, um, in nuclear power is the thing that is, at least temporarily, um, our, one of our best bets for solving a current problem of um, climate change and environmental degradation through kind of climate change. So a, a switch to, a greater switch to nuclear power. So the thing that I was kind of most, one of the things that I was most afraid of, um, I've now become a, an enthusiastic proponent of because it seems like a, a potentially good solution. 
um, or, well, you know, I, uh, so I'm very self-conscious about the, the fact that there are no, there are no complete solutions. It's always just a provisional. It's just trying to correct errors. It's just provisional guesses um, that we're going to revise later. But uh, things, uh, it does seem to show how, just how unpredictable problems and solutions are. Yeah, and uh, look, I was the same. I, although, as I say, um, I had had a, a deep interest in in physics even in high school, and I didn't know what to think myself about nuclear energy. Um, I I understood the history of places like Chernobyl and Three Mile Island; these these accidents that had happened, um, uh, where technology had been involved and the technology had gone wrong and caused absolute catastrophes for people. And so in Australia, for example, legislation was passed here where no nuclear power reactors for the generation of electricity were built at all, although we're sitting on one of the largest uranium deposits on the planet, if not the largest one, or one of the largest ones anyway. But we export the uranium. We don't use it here. And remarkably, over the last, um, just the last few weeks here in Australia, although we, and I, I did a podcast on this recently, the fact that not only do we sit on one of the largest uranium deposits on the planet, we sit on one of the largest coal deposits on the planet, and we've got a, a large amount of natural gas as well. But only a few weeks ago, there were great concerns that places like Sydney, the largest city in Australia, uh, and other areas on the east coast of Australia, uh, the states of New South Wales, Queensland and Victoria, may have gone into blackouts, may have run out of electricity at certain times, and the government was requesting that people ration their use of electricity. How could this situation have arisen? Electricity, the, the production of electricity solved very, very important problems. Fossil fuels solved very important problems. We moved from terrible problems to better problems. The terrible problems of the past a few centuries ago were people were dying of exposure to the cold during winter routinely. People were dying because their food was unable to be cooked or refrigerated sufficiently and so they'd get terrible cases of food poisoning. People were dying because the hospital would go into blackout now and again because there was you know, insufficient amounts of electricity. But we managed to find a solution. We, we moved from that situation of uh, dire health and terrible cold and uh, a, a lack of lack of fertilizer, which is another thing as well, you know, that comes out of this capacity to um, uh, generate vast amounts of energy and then be able to refine certain things and to, 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 to do mining is another thing as well. So we moved from that situation of not having those things and having terrible disease and high rates of death due to cold and exposure and that kind of thing, to a situation where we have largely solved those things or certainly solved those things to a much greater extent than they, than they, they were possibly solved in the past. Now, people tend not to die of exposure to the cold, certainly here in Australia and in large areas of Europe now. They tend not to die of exposure to the cold. And why? Because we have uh, a ubiquitous network of relatively cheap, uh, energy of, of electricity production. But what do we get for that? We cannot get to an unproblematic state. So we do have this problem, this problem whereby you burn fossil fuels, it creates carbon dioxide that goes into the atmosphere that retains a certain amount of additional heat in the atmosphere. Now, the solution that many people have suggested is let's shut down the coal-fired power stations and let's move to renewables. 
Now, that could be a solution. However, if by doing that, we run into the situation where, as appears to have just been avoided, barely, by the skin of our tail, just been avoided in Australia, blackouts, where people have no electricity whatsoever, then we're going backwards, not forwards to better problems, but back to the worst problems. And so this is the concern that I often have about top-down authoritarian approaches to these things. Instead, there should be a proliferation of different solutions. And one area where I, I, I disagree with people who are otherwise allies of mine is that I don't think that something like electricity production, for example, should be the business of government to make laws and regulations about. I think that if people want to choose, for example, a green option, then they should be allowed to. There should be that option, but it should be an option. And people who can't quite afford to invest in, for example, solar and wind just at the moment, they should be allowed to choose the cheaper option. Because uh, as I like to say, the, the, the argument that technology is going to get, out of, get us out of the climate crisis, as we keep being told it's a climate crisis, and that all we need to do is to have faith that technology will save the day that we will have sufficient wind and solar to replace all coal-fired power stations. I can agree with that. But that same argument that technology will save us also applies to continuing to use, for example, the existing fossil fuels such that in the future we will have carbon sequestration, let's say, that will suck the carbon dioxide directly from the atmosphere. In fact, we already have technology at the moment to do this. But it's expensive. Uh, people haven't really tried to scale it at the moment. And we appear to be putting all of our eggs into one basket when it comes to this particular problem. Not to mention, of course, that there are many, many, many problems that could animate civilization right now. And politically, we seem to be very fixated upon one particular problem. And I think that that's a very dangerous situation for any civilization to be in, to be overly concerned and focused upon and directing vast amounts of uh, ec the economy towards trying to solve this one particular problem. Because meanwhile, as you're looking down at the earth and all the problems that are going on at the earth, metaphorically speaking, the asteroid might be cre creeping up from behind you. I don't mean the literal asteroid, but the problem that you're not looking for. And this is why, um, you know, I say these, these things might seem tenuously connected, but this is why I think that we could possibly do as much good for the earth by investing as much money in fundamental physics, something like fundamental physics, as in the solutions to climate change. Because fundamental physics and fundamental science more broadly than just uh, fundamental climate science are going to enable us to spot those other problems that, quite honestly, at some point in the future, are going to make so-called catastrophic climate change seem like peanuts by comparison. We don't know what that is yet, but the day is coming. So the, 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 you know, the, the quiet Tuesday morning where out of the deep blue sea or the, 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 out of the blue sky, some problem is going to come that is going to turn the attention of the world towards that particular thing. And we'll forget about whatever else happens to be animating us at that time because it'll be a new problem and a problem that possibly we've never even considered before. Now, I don't want to catastrophize. <laughs> what I want to say is I want to make a, a case for rapid progress, the, 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 the more attention paid to broader areas, deeper areas, fundamental areas of science, the most fundamental of all areas of science, 
is physics. And the most fundamental area of physics is what is called fundamental physics, the, 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 the ways in which we can create the deepest knowledge about our theories of gravity, particle physics, uh, cosmology, uh, uh, and uh, uh, the unification of, of the, the various deep theories that we have out there right now. I think that these areas, these are the areas that really need more and more attention from uh, wider society, uh, governments, if governments is the way to go, corporations and, 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 and people more broadly need to be focused on not merely what is capturing uh, the, the political zeitgeist of any moment, and at the moment that is climate change, and there is some good reasons for that, but it shouldn't be that to the exclusion of all these other areas because, as I say, it is these other areas that are going to reveal this, the problems not yet known and climate change is known. So I think that 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 idea that we need to study fundamentals and takes us back maybe to the idea of uh, what the biggest misconceptions are about what it means to uh, think critically and to be rational. Um, because uh, uh, one of the things that you emphasize a lot, um, and I I think this idea comes from um, Deut from Popper through Deutsch via Deutsch, um, or from Popper and from Deutsch is um, the role of creativity in um, the generation of ideas. So you, um, I can't remember how Deutsch words it exactly, but all knowledge is, begins with guesses, with conjectures um, that we first guess what's out there and then we test our guesses. Um, and you talk, you also use, uh, the philosopher Chiara Marletti's concept of, um, knowledge as resilient information, um, i.e. information that's been buffeted by, uh, by alternative ideas and, um, and that is kind of stand, standing reasonably firm. But it's still about guessing. And I think, uh, Deutsch also says that we should, we should just call our scientific ideas, instead of calling them scientific theories, we should call them scientific misconceptions, and that would be more accurate. That it's a, a, an attempt to gradually have less and less error, um, but it's entirely based on and knowledge comes about through creative um, guesswork. Um, could you say a bit more about that and a bit more about what people misunderstand about the nature of critical thinking, um, perhaps uh, also referring to what justificationists and Bayesianists misunderstand about that. So for much of the history of philosophy, there has been this great debate about what knowledge actually is. When someone says, I know X where anything or X is anything at all. You know, I know that the sky is blue. I know that God exists. I know that uh, nitrogen is number seven on the periodic table, whatever that thing happens to be. For a long time, it was uh, debated about what precisely this thing knowledge is and what precisely this term I know happens to be. Although there were early ancient Greek philosophers that kind of um, orbited the correct notion, what I would regard as the more correct notion of of what knowledge is, it was it was Plato and others and Aristotle who promoted this idea that knowledge is a form of justified true belief, and th this still pervades academia today, and and, and even people who 
kind of disagree with parts of the definition, basically accept aspects of it and they don't deviate too much from it unless they've read and understood Popper or encountered David Deutsch at some point. Now, this idea of justified true belief, firstly, it reduces knowledge to being all about the subjective contents of a human being's mind, beliefs, okay, beliefs. And justified true, well, that's a very high standard, isn't it? To try and justify as true something is, is, is a very, very high bar because how do you go about justifying as true something like a general relativity, you know, the Einstein's great theory of relativity? How do you go justifying as true the idea that, um, I don't know, that phlogiston does not exist? Okay, this is the idea that um, combustion happens because flammable things contain this substance called phlogiston. Now, now we know that this thing doesn't exist, but instead oxygen combined with certain things causes combustion. Justifying as true something in science has long been regarded as being the unachievable thing. So how can you then say you know anything in science? Because nothing is ever justified as true, as actually true. And this leads many, many philosophers over the uh, centuries to go down this road that Hume first illuminated and said, well, we might not be able to justify as absolutely true something, but we can get quite confident by using this method of induction, by repeatedly observing the same thing over and over again. And Hume uh, said what the problem was, what he thought the problem was. The problem in Hume's view was, well, we can justify as true things in mathematics. Pythagoras' theorem is justified as true. You know, the square on the hypotenuse equals the sum of the square of the other two sides. There are many, many proofs of this. We can justify it as true. We can justify as true that, you know, two plus three equals five. Justify it as true. I have a proof of that. But in science, we don't quite have that same sort of thing. We can observe, and the classic example is, the rather irritating example to a Popperian, is something like the claim that, well, every swan hitherto observed over in Europe is white, therefore all swans are white. But you can never justify as true, as absolutely finally certainly true that you won't find a swan that isn't white. And of course, then you go to Australia and you find that there are black swans. So how can science really be about truth in the same way that mathematics is? Well, this whole vision of what knowledge is and therefore of what critical thinking amounts to is completely misconceived. If you start with the bad idea about what knowledge is as being justified true belief, then you're going to follow a road of trying to uh, say whether or not something amounts to knowledge or not based upon this rather erroneous definition of what knowledge happens to be. What Karl Popper added to the conversation was, we don't need to justify as true things in science or anywhere else for that matter. So this problem that, that Hume said was a problem isn't a problem because induction's not actually a thing. You can't actually uh, repeatedly observe a thing over and over again and conclude on the basis of X number of observations, 10 observations, 100 observations, 1,000 observations in a row. No number of finite observations will entitle you to say the next time you observe that thing, it's going to be the same as the previous 10, 100 or 1,000 observations that you've made because you might just observe something that is completely different. And so what Popper said was, forget about induction. Induction doesn't work. That's not what knowledge is. What knowledge is, is useful information. It's, so, it's, it's, it's information that solves a problem of some kind or other. 
You can say that you know something even if you're not certain about it. Certainty is just an emotion after all. And more importantly, perhaps, than any of this is that knowledge can be instantiated, can be represented in things that are not merely human minds. So, for example, uh, my favorite example of this is a telescope. A telescope contains within it the knowledge of how to focus light. Now, the the telescope, of course, doesn't know anything. But if an alien race, for whatever reason, was able to travel here to planet Earth, and by some remarkable coincidence, was able to actually traverse the galaxy, but didn't, didn't hitherto know how to use a telescope or didn't know what a telescope was, they could take our artifact that is a telescope, take it aboard their spaceship, deconstruct it, reverse engineer it, and find what the knowledge there in that telescope is. They would uncover for themselves that this device is able to focus light. That knowledge is somehow encoded in the telescope. And it doesn't need to be written down as a plan. It can just be there in the object. And by the way, this leads to the notion that uh, structures like DNA contain the knowledge of how to build an organism. They contain within it the knowledge. So information and knowledge have this interesting relationship. Information is a a broader category of uh, things, whereas knowledge is useful information, the information that solves a problem. And because it is useful, because it does solve a problem, it's the information that tends to get itself copied, to get replicated. In other words, it's resilient, as Chiara Marletta says. What Deutsch says, and I love this poetic version of knowledge, Deutsch says, it's the knowledge, knowledge is the information that once instantiated in a physical substrate tends to cause itself to remain so. That sounds rather convoluted, but all it means is that, that knowledge itself Once you write it down, represent it, if it's a real genuine piece of knowledge, if it's useful information, then it will tend to get itself transferred from one place to another, copied because it is so useful. And knowledge is independent of the physical substrate, independent of where it is being, like if you write it down on a piece of paper, it's not identical to the piece of paper or the ink in which it is written. Because after all, you could read it to your friend and then it becomes sound waves. Your friend can then remember that thing, that piece of knowledge, and then it becomes crackles of neuronal activity going on in the brain. And then if the person types it out on a computer, well, then you've got a different representation. It's then pixels on a screen. And then it might be sent as an email, you know, and then it becomes light through optic fiber. So the knowledge is being preserved at every single stage of this transmission, at this different replication. It's independent of the the physical substrate, but the knowledge itself is being faithfully replicated, copied, and transmitted from place to place which makes knowledge an interesting kind of abstract entity, different to a purely physical entity. Can I, can I interject for a moment? Because I was just reminded of um, the famous example that William Paley gives of the watch that is found on the heath. And Paley is, in a sense, recognizing that there is knowledge embedded within the watch. So if you find a watch on a heathland, um, that a, a watch... Um, Finding a watch there is different from finding a stone there. The watch can't have been assembled by chance. Some kind of design went into making the watch. And therefore, Paley imagines that that knowledge was created by a designer, God. Um, and this was one of the kind of a classic pre-Darwinian arguments for 
uh, for a god. Probably Paley's the best one of the people making those kinds of arguments. Um, And what he didn't know, of course, is that there is knowledge embedded in the watch, but the knowledge has the knowledge has come from human intellect, and that in turn has come from evolution through natural selection. Maybe I'm oversimplifying that. No, I think that's quite right. You're, you're exactly right to say that Paley recognised a genuine problem, that there is this issue of, well, how did this structure in living organisms arise? After all, if you find the watch on the heath, then you presume there's a designer. But up until Charles Darwin, no one had thought, to my knowledge, that knowledge could be arrived at by a process other than through intelligent design, so to speak, because all the knowledge that was known about was via that mechanism. But the genius of Charles Darwin was to figure out a way in which complexity, specifically knowledge of a certain kind we now understand, the knowledge that is, you know, he didn't know about DNA, but now we know the knowledge is represented in the DNA, that there is this way of generating knowledge. It's not explanatory knowledge, we call it genetic knowledge, but there is knowledge of how to construct an organism, for example, that is arrived at not through an intelligent design, through some sort of intelligence figuring out the plan and then building the thing, but rather through this gradual ratcheting up of complexity via natural selection, by genes encountering the environment and either being selected for and surviving or being selected against and discarded by the environment. And this is the way you get this increasing complexity over time through organisms via this process that is called Darwinism. And and insofar as we include the gene in that idea, we have what is called neo-Darwinism, this new idea that this is selection of the gene. And we're not selecting for groups of species. We're not selecting even for species. But the gene itself, as Richard Dawkins describes it, is, is selfish. It's the thing that is getting replicated. Uh, and it either survives or it doesn't, given a particular environment. But if you consider, as I've said, and as Deutsch describes, knowledge as being useful information, then absolutely this genetic knowledge is useful information. It is the information that enables the survival of the genes and in um, most cases the survival of the individual representative of of a given species in a given environment. Uh, Of course, we human beings are the first, well, no, I shouldn't say that. We human beings are the only extant species that remains here on earth that is able to go this step further and fly free of our genes because we can create a new kind of knowledge prior to the existence of people, not just human beings, but people, prior to the existence of, of, of people like us, us and people like us, uh, you know, in other words, our ancestor species, there was no explanatory knowledge in the universe unless there are aliens out there that are also doing what we do. We are able to explain the environments in which we find ourselves, solve our problems and overcome whatever limitations the genes set upon us. And this is also one way in which uh, this this worldview, this idea of knowledge being this universal capacity, having this universal capacity to problem solve, and human beings being universal in their capacity to utilize this knowledge. In other words, human beings are universal explainers, we like to say. We can explain anything out there in the universe, no matter what the phenomena is. And the argument for that is because if there was such a thing that wasn't explicable 
by us, then all we're saying, all that argument is saying is that there is a thing beyond the capacity of the laws of nature to understand because we are a particular uh, structure that instantiates a way of understanding the universe. And if there's something we can't understand, well, you're just appealing to something that is beyond nature to understand because we are the thing within nature that understands stuff. And so we have flown free of our genes in principle, not in practice yet, but eventually as we gain more and more knowledge about exactly how it is that the genes affect our bodies and the genes might even uh, have an effect upon our minds to some extent by giving us certain inborn ideas. The more we come to understand that, the more we gain power over our own bodies minds and capacities to uh, solve problems of the future, including our own individual long-term survival. I've been speaking a lot about the survival of civilization, but in terms of the survival of us as individuals, that requires a knowledge of how it is that our mind runs on this thing that is called our brain and how it is that this brain, for example, degrades over time and what we might do about preventing that from happening. These are all soluble problems. And again, it's one of those areas that really more um, attention should be paid to, that we need to focus more on solving that particular problem of how it is that people, because people are the most important things in the universe that we know of. Uh, It is only through us that anything else is going to be preserved, that anything of value in this universe that, that people happen to value. You know, Sam Harris makes this point that that value only kind of exists in a universe of conscious creatures, that there's no such thing as value until you, you have people. And a lot of people have converged on this idea over time. Yaron uh, Brook, uh, a great proponent of uh, the, the philosophy of objectivism, talks in similar terms about this idea that 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 human beings have this inherent value. And what I think that this worldview adds to to that conception is why it is that we have value, what it is. It it is inherent to us, but what is it that that, that gives us a particular, an infinite kind of value to some extent? And what that is, is our special relationship to the laws of physics. We are the only uh, system, if you'd want to call it that, the, the only entity known in the universe that is able to recognize problems, identify errors, and solve them through the creation of knowledge, making everything better. That's where our inherent worth comes from. Thanks, Brett. Um, the couple of, I had a couple more questions about knowledge specifically, and then I'd like to talk a little bit about morality and also uh, tolerance. Um, so first of all, I think that um, Popper, so we've talked a little bit about how knowledge um, is Knowledge is generated through conjectures, making guesses about things and then testing our guesses, um, stress testing our guesses. And you also talk about, um, sorry, um, Deutsch uses the phrase, I think it's Deutsch who uses the phrase um, that all observation is theory laden, um, i.e. that there is there is really no such thing as gaining knowledge just purely from observation, the kind of in- empiricist model of, of knowledge, um, Locke's kind of model that you go out into the world and you look at things and by looking closely, you discover truths. What does Deutsch mean by the idea that um, observations are theory laden um, and how does this differ from an empiricist worldview? 
So there's two ways of coming at that notion of observation as theory-laden. On the one hand, it's the idea that we, we need to have a theory of what to look for in the first place. So it's not like you just, I think Popper had this, this notion that he would, he would begin some of his uh, lecture series with a simple word. He would say to his class of students uh, assembled before him, observe, and that's it. You know, and of course, they would then go, observe what? Observe how? You know, like, quite right. You know, you, first you need a theory of what to observe and how to go about observing and how to gather the data. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, we also have this notion that we know that our senses are very complicated data-collecting devices. Well, when you say you go out and let's look outside and see the beautiful tree with its lovely green leaves, I can see that the tree has green leaves. Okay, very well. Let's think a little about that process, the theory of how it is you observe those green leaves because what's actually happening? if it's a nice, bright, sunny day, is there are photons of light. This is our theory, right? There's the photons of light coming all the way from the sun through the atmosphere, hitting that tree. And by the way, those photons are all colours of the rainbow, all colours of the spectrum. You know, combined together, they make basically white light. All of them are absorbed except for the green ones. The green ones are reflected, and that's why we see the green photons. They then bounce off those leaves Entering our eye, at the front of our eye, is the uh, the iris. It goes through the iris, it goes through the vitreous humor, through the lens of the eye, through the eyeball, and eventually, after being refracted, and that, that, that itself is a complicated process when it comes to individual photons, being absorbed by the atoms out of which your eye is made and then re-emitted, absorbed and re-emitted, absorbed and re-emitted, until that photon reaches the, the retina, the black part at the back of your eye, which is what you're seeing when you look into someone's eyes. That black part is the, the retina at the back. Exciting cells at the back of that retina and causing a, a change in molecules. The, 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 these, um, these molecules that the, in the cells of the eye, they bend and warp. And in doing so, when struck by light of a certain frequency, release electrons which then travel or cause electrical impulses to go via the optic nerve back into the brain where they're then decoded by the visual cortex. That huge, long, complicated process that I've get, just given you is the theory of observation of just sight. So you've got a similar thing for, you know, when it comes to hearing. So theory-laden, I mean, at any stage along that process, something could go wrong, error could creep in. And we can never guarantee that error isn't, isn't a part of our observation process. So this is the sense in which we mean observation is theory-laden. There's two ways. We need to know what to look for. We need to know what to look at and how to do it. And also that there's no such thing as directly observing. That when you're looking at uh, leaves on a tree, what does it mean to say you're looking at leaves on the tree? Well, it means you're collecting photons, but you're not even seeing photons as there are. What your brain is doing is interpreting neuronal firings. That's what's really good. That's what observation amounts to. So it's far from direct. I mean, your brain is all the way over here and the leaves are all the way over there. And you're saying that you're observing them directly. Well, not quite. Uh, it, it, it's this complicated process. Now, it could be the case, and we know this, that, that our senses can go wrong now and again. And this is why and Neil deGrasse Tyson, a great popularized science, makes this point. This is why we have such a thing as science. This is why we have data collecting devices. 
specifically because of error correction, because we cannot trust, we cannot rely upon our naked senses. We have to do repeat observations. We have to use instrumentation, the instrumentation itself. We have a theory of how the instrumentation works. And, and this is why science is the thing that allows us to correct errors in our own poor data-taking devices, which are our natural senses. Uh, and so the Papirian view is that because observations are always theory-laden and theories can contain errors, uh, inevitably will contain errors, which we can gradually correct, gradually come to a more refined understanding that we, it's, it's impossible for us to get to the final theory. What we get instead are better and better approximations to reality, better approximations to whatever the final truth happens to be. We'll never get to the end. And that's a wonderful thing. That's an optimistic idea because it means that progress will just continue on and on and on. Things will continue to get better and better and better as long as we make the right choices along the way. Um, but happily for us, and I think it's a unique worldview in this, in this regard, that, that even um, uh, philosophies that are also reasonably optimistic on this point <laughs> tend to think that uh, the best that we can hope for is one day we will get the final theory of science. One day we'll have in hand the final theory of physics or of chemistry or of neuroscience or uh, we tend not to speak in these terms instead we just think of better and better more and more accurate theories that that are continually improving our understanding in all directions of everything and revealing new and more interesting problems along the way thank you now i've forgotten what the second thing was that i was going to ask you about this oh yes sorry uh the heart the so one of the really interesting things that um, I took particularly from your podcast is um, you talk about uh, how to differentiate between um, better and worse. What we're looking for is, is when we're evaluating conjectures is better and worse explanations for things. And those better and worse explanations of um, how we uh, how we evaluate explanations is in terms of how hard they are to vary. And you give a lovely example of um, why the why it's a better explanation for seasons on our planet, the tilt of the Earth's axis is a better explanation than um, the Greek legend of the goddess Demeter. I mean, obviously it is, but um, the reason that you give is very clarificatory for how good explanations work. Um, could you talk a little bit about that hard to vary thing? And also somebody asked on Twitter, is that um, your original idea or does that come from Deutsch or Popper? That, that's absolutely from David Deutsch. Uh, there's a, I think um, a TED Talk, he does a wonderful job of this, an exhilarating talk called um, A New Way to Explain Explanation where he goes through precisely that example that you've raised there. And it's also in, I think it's chapter one of the beginning of infinity as well. All scientific theories have this character of being very succinct and not containing any additional add-ons, superfluous kind of assumptions or statements about reality beyond what is absolutely needed. Every single statement in the scientific theory should uh, be uh, precise and be unable to be very easily varied. Now, you, you speak of um, this idea, this ancient, uh, the Greek myth 
You can pick any Greek myth you like that accounts for any phenomena that you like just about. And you will find that if some god is invoked, which has a power in order to do the particular thing, then why not have another god? do that particular thing. You know, when it comes to uh, the explanation of seasons that the Greeks had, well, Persephone was the, the, the uh, I can't remember, <laughs> whoever the god was that controls the seasons uh, could easily be varied. Well, like Zeus is the, um, you know, the, the, obviously the king of the gods. Why couldn't he be the one? That could that could ch- control the seasons? Why couldn't uh, Apollo do it? You know, pick your god, easily varied. Now, this is not like the scientific account of seasons where uh, the reason for the seasons is that the earth is on a tilt and as the earth orbits the sun, then areas of the earth's surface are differentially heated because either they're pointing towards the sun or they're pointing away from the sun. So for uh, a certain part of the year in summer in the Northern Hemisphere, the Northern Hemisphere is pointing towards the sun. And then uh, when it's uh, winter there in the Northern Hemisphere, it's summer in the Southern Hemisphere. Why? Because the Southern Hemisphere is now pointing towards the sun. It's receiving more direct sunlight. That is a very hard to vary explanation in the sense that you can't change the sun for any other cosmological body. You can't alter the tilt of the earth. You can't say it's, well, it's 45 degrees and not what it is, 23.5 degrees or something like that. You can't alter the northern hemisphere for the southern hemisphere. Every single part of the theory serves an explanatory purpose. And this is true of every single scientific theory, that you need the various components there in order to do the job of explaining so that you solve the problem that you want to solve. You know, there was long, for a long time, it was a, a mystery as to what the structure of the atom was. And, and, and various experimentalists, people like Rutherford, would do experiments by firing radiation of a certain kind. Uh, in the case of Rutherford, I think they were using, um, I think he was using, and his collaborators were using alpha particles, which turn out to be uh, helium nuclei. They would fire this at a, a sheet of gold leaf, the very thin pieces of gold. And now and again, Surprisingly, uh, when you're firing this alpha radiation, this, this stream of, uh, of, of helium nuclei at the gold leaf, now and again, some of them would bounce back and they could be detected, which is a remarkable thing. Most of them went through, but some bounced back. Now, what was the explanation of this? Well, they, you know, their theory was that what you have in an atom is a very diffuse uh, setup where electrons are very, very small and they orbit a very, very tiny but very, very massive nucleus. And this very massive nucleus, when it is struck by an alpha particle, it can cause that alpha particle to bounce backwards and be detected behind where, where, from where it was fired. And so all of that uh, idea is very hard to vary. You can't change the nucleus for the electrons. You can't say the electrons are positively charged and the, the, the nucleus is negatively charged. Uh, all of this has uh, all of these components of the explanation have a, f- a serve a functional purpose, uh, and now this should not only be true for science, of course, but true for any area of knowledge. Uh, what we're seeking are good explanations, and what a good explanation is, as as Deutsch explains, is a hard to vary explanation, an explanation where each aspect of the explanation. Each thing that you're invoking as a part of the explanation serves a functional purpose such that it accounts for the phenomena that you're trying to explain and thereby solves the problem that you want to solve. 
And in science, part of this, just one part of it, is that it enables, therefore, the prediction of certain things, especially in the physical sciences. Yeah, I think that that hard to vary concept is also important in art. Um, so if you are telling a story, for example, and you write, somehow he suddenly began to feel afraid, you know, that will not convince your reader. You need a, uh, you need an explanation. Um, you need within, within the logic of the story, you need an explanation that is not, that doesn't feel random and arbitrary that feels as though, uh, that has a sense of inevitability to it, um, or that fits perfectly with the story. So if you look at a story that's especially well-crafted, um, for example, my, my personal, one of my personal favorite novels, Ursula Le Guin's um, little novel, The Left Hand of Darkness, you have a lot of really um, bizarre fantastical elements in that novel. So for example, it's set on a planet called Gethin, where it's where they have are just emerging from an ice age. And so it's a uh, an ice and snowbound, extremely cold place. And also everyone on Gethin is a um a sequential hermaphrodite. Um or Gethin, the 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 um sentient species on Gethin, that the equivalent of humans on Gethin are um, are sequential hermaphrodites, and you also have a a visit from a, a, an ambassador who has travelled one way uh, from a planet very far away to try to convince the, the locals to join an alliance. So you have these absolutely fantastical elements, but um, what hap- the reason why the story is one of the reasons why the story is so good is that these are um for the narrative of the story to work all of those elements are necessary um and all feed off each other i e this tale could only have happened under these circumstances um and these circumstances enrich the tale um and it's also a kind of sense in in good tragedy as well this feeling of the inevitability of how things will turn out in a way that you cannot necessarily predict in advance, but once it ha- it's happened, gives you that feeling of, ah, you know, it's clear as to why it was this way. And it feels as though it could only have been this way and no other way. Um, so surprises have this, rather than giving you this kind of what the fuck feeling of surprise, it's the surprise of, aha, the aha surprise rather than the what the fuck one. And that also seems to me to be connected to an idea, of course, less rigorous than in science and philosophy, but an idea of hard to variability, uh, hardness, hardness, how how can I put that? Difficulty of variability. Yes. So as I began this conversation, I'm interested in this whole idea that knowledge is a unified whole and what you've spoken about there illustrates that point. And this notion that explanatory knowledge consists of hard-to-vary explanations is a universal one. It applies not merely to science, which is just those explanations that are about the physical world, but it applies to morality. Those explanations there should be hard to vary. To, to how to write good fiction, good poetry, how to produce uh, better art and better music. As 
many have observed, you know, the, the, the what a composer is doing when they're constructing a better song is striving to find something there in reality, a more harmonious piece, a more beautiful piece. And so their waste paper basket begins to fill up with the trials that don't meet their own internal criteria of what amounts to being a beautiful piece of music. And the same, too, is true of a writer, of course, that they will – oh, well, these days, of course, they're using a word processor, so they're deleting stuff. But the, the, the fact that they are deleting stuff and not just writing down anything random means they're striving for something, as you say, is hard to vary in that it might be a fictional space, but – it still exists in objective reality, this objective standard of what amounts to being good fiction because there truly is good and bad fiction. You can write bad fiction. As I, I am, again, a strong proponent of uh, objective beauty and objective aesthetics and objectively better and worse fiction. I don't think that just anything goes. I think that there are standards that people should strive for now, I'm not an expert in art or in writing fiction, but I can recognize that, that uh, if people want to improve the fields that they themselves are in, they should recognize when there is virtue in those fields and when they should strive to improve the values and the, the, the ways in which uh, structures within those fields are improved over time because they can be. But if you deny, if you're, if you're a relativist of a kind and you deny that there is such a thing as better and worse in art or in fiction or something like that, then you won't have standards that you can improve in your art and your fiction won't get better over time. But, uh, you know, within this um, idea of objective knowledge, objective knowledge applies not only to science, not only to morality and philosophy and economics, but also to art and fiction. We didn't get to, by the way, we didn't get to um, uh, uh, critical thinking. I think I just sprung into my mm, mind that you asked yes, me a question about yes. that and we, uh, perhaps we should go back to that. Yes, I want to say something about the art stuff for a second whilst I remember it. Because at my age, if you don't say the thing when you, when you remember, it's gone. Um, but I've been, so I've been watching The Wire recently. I'm a very, very late adopter. And um, by popular request, there is going to be a podcast specifically dedicated to analyzing the, the series The Wire. Um, but one of the things that I'm often hearing from critics about The Wire is the show teaches you how to watch it. And I think that's an extremely interesting um, idea. And, and what's happening in fiction is you're offered a model um, and you are given the, provided with the parameters, the model, and then everything that happens within that model needs to be internally coherent with the model itself. And that's that it doesn't matter what, how closely the elements, the model hue to real life. So the, you know, in the model, it can be um, wizards at a boarding school, or, you know, you can have a planet, a faraway planet full of sequential hermaphrodites. But um, what's important is, um, that it makes sense within that model. And it's one of the things that The Wire does do extremely well, which is that every everyone's actions and motivations are understandable within the world in which they are um, living, the, the little world within world, which is um, Baltimore in The Wire. 
So, um, yeah, just sorry, a side note on that. No, I was, I was a big fan as well. I can't remember. It was many, many years ago that I, I think <laughs> I, I watched it when it first came out. But I do remember um, Omar Little being one of my favourite characters of all time. Oh, so, yes. you know, so many, yes. yeah, like, as you say, so many of those characters were written. Um, I was much younger back then. I think if I watched it again, I'd probably appreciate it a lot more if I, if I went back to it. it it's a, like The Sopranos. It's one of those things that's on my list to watch again. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, let's uh, so um, let's return to critical thinking. What do you think is the biggest uh, misconception that people have uh, um, about critical thinking, and and what do you see as uh, the important thing in critical thinking? What is it that we learn when we learn to do critical thinking? So this is one of my hobby horses, so to speak, because I was was involved in education (laughs) for so long and involved in this subject. There's this global organisation called the International Baccalaureate Office. They run courses around the globe uh, uh, on education to help people get into university. It's a pre-university course. And one of their courses is the theory of knowledge. Now, um, the theory of knowledge is not the theory of knowledge in the sense that I understand it, namely epistemology. It's something else. But that that course ostensibly began as a critical thinking course. It called itself a critical thinking course. And now it's all the rage, critical and creative thinking across educational institutions across the world, insofar as they're not uh, captured by critical race theory, which is the big political thing at the moment people like to talk about. Um, uh, there, there are fashions and trends. Uh, if any area of uh, human society is motivated by fashions and trends beyond clothing fashion, it is education, captured by trends and fashions. And one of the ones that came in to fashion, and I think it's still there, is is, is critical thinking, this idea of critical and creative thinking. But what educational theorists seem to focus on, uh, and this, this is true not only in the schooling system, but it's also true in the university system, is that they regard critical thinking as kind of a set of heuristics, uh, which if only you can follow these rules, you know, by not falling into the um, logical fallacies, let's say, by becoming a better Bayesian reasoner, if you understand probability theory, these kind of things, then you will become a good critical thinker. And you will become one of the, the good people who is less like, likely to make errors. And I just think this entire way of thinking about what people are, what education is, and what critical thinking is, is utterly misconceived from the ground up. And it all comes back to this notion of what they think knowledge is, as justified true belief, because if the, the idea of critical thinking then in, in this conception is that you are either, you have a good justification or you don't. And if you don't have a good justification, then you're not being a good critical thinker, you're being irrational. You're one of the irrational people who's liable to make errors. Uh, you, you, should, uh, you shouldn't have confidence in this particular belief. Now, what I think critical thinking is, is just what the word says. It's about finding criticisms. Now, the word criticism has a terrible odour about it because people rightly do not themselves want to be criticised. And so and, and we should not want to criticise people. I think it's a category error to criticise a person. What we should criticise are ideas. Now, sometimes people are very wedded to their ideas and they can be hurt by having their own ideas criticised. So we have to be cognizant of whether or not somebody wants criticism. But when we're in, we're talking science and we're talking philosophy and rationality and we're talking the domain of ideas, then, well, it's open slather as far as I'm concerned. 
Yeah, but we're not talking about a particular behavior of a person. We're talking about scientific ideas. So we're talking about ideas in history or ideas in philosophy or ideas in economics, morality, name your area. And so what critical thinking is, is about criticizing. Why? For the purpose of trying to improve stuff, for trying to come up with where the errors are, to identify errors. The fundamental epistemological and moral rule is do not destroy the means of error correction, which I've mentioned earlier. Now, I'm not a foundationalist, and I don't think David Deutsch is a foundationalist either. But this one... What, what, sorry, what's, what's a foundationalist? A foundationalist is someone who holds the notion that there is an idea, call it the foundational idea, which cannot possibly be questioned or improved upon. It is, so what a foundational it's it's kind of another word for a dogmatist someone who thinks that they have a particular idea which cannot possibly be improved now i think that absolutely every idea can be improved and so therefore we should have this panopticon approach of criticizing all ideas that we exist in a culture of criticism, and this is why our civilization makes rapid progress, as I've already made that point throughout this conversation. So we need to preserve the means of error correction. A, a foundationalist is someone who thinks that they have found the piece of knowledge which should not be changed. And so this is where we have these religious ideas, of course, come in. But it's not only religious ideas. People have political beliefs and ideologies which lead them to have an unquestioning attitude towards a particular set of ideas that they can't possibly be improved. They've found the final truth. Now, when it comes to this particular idea, this one idea which says, do not destroy the means of error correction. Now, is that an idea that itself could possibly be improved? Well, perhaps we could come to a deeper understanding of it, but it's the one idea that I would say I would not want to do away with because if we do away with that, we do away with preserving the means of error correction, which means that we would somehow or other enable errors to begin to creep in. That's just a side point. So it's just a, it's a, it's a, it's a little subtlety sort of a, a, um, about whether or not am I being a foundationalist on this point or am I not being a foundationalist on this point? I don't really know. I, 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 I leave it open as to whether or not we can actually improve that particular idea. But what I think critical thinking is about is about error identification and error correction. And we can do that in an open-ended way. There doesn't have to be a fixed set of heuristics that people learn that once they've learned them, become good critical thinkers. And this is where I think that educational systems go terribly wrong, that they begin to teach students things like, well, you know, if you memorize <laughs> um, how to uh, avoid these logical fallacies, you know, argument from authority, learn, learn that it's called argument from authority, and then uh, make sure you avoid it. This, mis this is misleading. It can mislead the student and the learner into thinking that, once they've got these things in hand, they will be somehow less prone to error, but they never are because all people are always equally prone to error. As Popper implored, we are all equal in our infinite ignorance. All of us have infinite ignorance. All we differ by is in the little bits that we do know, as he said. So you can be an expert in physics. And you might very well, uh, to some extent, be less prone to error than the complete layperson in physics. However, you might also have a clouded vision of your very own field. There's lovely examples of this. Uh, David Deutsch talks about uh, Arthur Eddington, 
one of the pioneers of um, uh, relativity theory, uh, sort of working at the early in the early 1900s. He was one of the ones who basically thought that physics was just about tied up in a neat little bundle, that because Isaac Newton had figured out the laws of motion, because Isaac Newton had figured out the law of gravity and various other people had figured out the laws of electromagnetism, it was almost done. Everything was almost finished. How wrong he was. Because he himself helped to usher in uh, relativity, which overturned what Newton had said, and quantum theory, which also overturned classical physics. So blinded as he was by his own field, he was uh, less able to see that not only was physics not complete, but just around the corner was a huge um, gap in our knowledge about what the fundamental nature of reality was. So we are all of us, all the time, uh, infinitely prone to error, but we can be better critical thinkers by, by the measure of trying to find errors, trying to criticize things. And criticism, uh, I, I, I want to make the appeal for criticism as having a, a virtuous um, character. It doesn't need to be thought of as this um, uh, terribly emotionally disturbing thing. It can be that, but only when misused. The, 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 one of the great issues, one of the, one of the, one of the dangers, I suppose, um, which is unavoidable uh, in, a, in, an, in an open society, in a dynamic society, in a society that is uh, ruled by uh, the search for criticisms so that we can improve things, is that sometimes the criticism might be turned on the wrong thing, including itself, including itself, and also turned on the person doing the criticising. Okay, because if if that continues to happen, then a person feels less willing to engage in criticism for fear that they themselves, as a person, are going to be criticised. So there are hazards with criticism, but those hazards are actually far better, far better hazards to encounter than the hazards that are encountered in a static society where criticism is not allowed, where instead we have rule by authority and the political authorities or the scientific authorities or the religious authorities are the ones in charge and who say you cannot criticise our set of political doctrines or our set of religious ideas or our set of scientific precepts and rules, uh, then you have a far worse danger. So I'd rather be in the dynamic society where there are hazards with criticism. The criticism can cause hurt to some people. Criticism can sometimes be used to criticise itself, to say, the very act of criticizing is itself a problem. Okay, that's a criticism of criticism, which I think is a misdirection of criticism, a misfiring, so to speak. But I'd rather have that problem than the problem of not having criticism at all. And that's what I think critical thinking is, just trying to find better ways, new modes of criticism and and ways of uh, finding the errors and correcting the errors. Um, talking of criticism, uh, um my friend, my friend James uh, Kierstead, who's a personal friend of mine, has written a comment on Twitter. Um, asked a question on Twitter, which I think the of which I think the answer would be very useful to me and to other people as well. Which is, what did Popper really think about tolerance and intolerance? How accurate is this widely shared cartoon? And um, I can pop the cartoon into the show notes. Um, but it's that cartoon, The Paradox of uh, Tolerance by philosopher Karl Popper. I'll just kind of try and describe it. It shows a couple of people looking very angry, um, and they've got a speech bubble with a Nazi sign crossed out. 
And uh, it says, should a tolerant society tolerate intolerance? And then there's a neo-Nazi guy with a swastika tattoo and a tiki torch who's, who says, you want more tolerance? Respect my ideas. And then it says, the answer is no. It's a paradox, but unlimited tolerance can lead to the extinction of tolerance. And then it has uh, some guy um, in an old-fashioned, an old-fashioned German guy from the Weimar Republic period. Um, and he's holding up a finger and he says, let's give them a chance. And next to him is a Nazi. Um, and, and the caption says, when we extend tolerance to those who are openly intolerant, the tolerant ones end up being destroyed and tolerance with them. And it shows somebody doing a Hitler salute and it shows kind of the, the, like height of the Nazi era, uh, and not, um, one of Hitler's kind of speeches and parades. And then the final, uh, segment, it says, any movement that reaches intolerance and persecution must be outside of the law. And it shows little foot kicking away a miniature Hitler. Um, and it says, as paradoxical as it may seem, defending tolerance, and it's got this, um, cartoon of Popper himself, requires to not tolerate the intolerant. So how accurate is that cartoon? Do you agree with it? And do you think it's an accurate representation of Popper's views? Well, I, I don't know if it's an accurate representation of Popper's views. I wouldn't like to speak for him or pretend to be a Popper scholar, so to speak. But I, I would say that I agree with the basic idea that there is this issue of tolerating the intolerant. But I think we can refine it now and in what I've just been in this conversation sort of harping on about. I think that Deutsch can be brought to bear on this and to refine this so-called paradox of tolerance, namely through the lens of, as I say, the um, do not destroy the means of error correction heuristic, this maximum, this, this idea that there's this one thing that we need to preserve above all else. So if someone comes along and starts to preach intolerance, well, I would say it depends on whether or not the kind of intolerance they're preaching um, uh, is going to destroy the means of error correction or not. After all, a person could just be, you know, in a simple silly case, a person could be preaching intolerance against Coca-Cola. Well, so what? You know, um, they could be preaching intolerance against um, the, the, the taste of oysters. Oh, so what? So they're preaching it. Uh, it doesn't matter. But if they're preaching intolerance against certain people and trying to stir up violence, the issue there is that a person is a themselves, a person is a means of error correction. And if you're stirring up violence against people, you're stirring up means against the means of error correction, which we cannot tolerate. We cannot tolerate threats which will possibly cause the destruction of error correction. So that's a wide thing. So in the very first instance, and the, 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 the first and primary means of error correction is lives of people. People are knowledge creators. They are problem solvers. That's another way of saying they are error correctors. And so they must not be destroyed, number one, above all else. And then you have derivatives of that. So do not destroy the means of error correction also includes, under the umbrella of that is, Free speech, again, as we've mentioned throughout this conversation. It also includes things like free trade, the free exchange of goods. All of these things, these, these, these liberal ideas, 
libertarian ideas indeed, uh, are ways in which we shouldn't tolerate the intolerance when it comes to the destruction of means of progress, means of error correction, because that's what that's what uh, progress amounts to. Progress amounts to finding better explanations. How? Through the solving of problems. How? Through the identification of errors. And so we, we, we that is the way in which I would just put a spin on what Popper is saying there. I think it's um, insofar as that, that what, what you said there represents the view of Popper, that we, we, we shouldn't tolerate the intolerant. Well, there's, there's probably, um, you know, uh, uh, what would we say, a, a more subtle way of understanding what intolerance means. The, the crucial part, the crucially important kind of intolerance that we shouldn't tolerate is anyone who comes along and says, we need to destroy that thing where that thing is a means of error correction, namely a particular person, a group of people, freedom of speech, uh, economic freedom and liberty, uh, uh, yeah, personal right to your own life, all that sort of stuff. You know, the, 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 these, these liberal ideas that the, the West and the Enlightenment tradition has taken a long time to discover and has devoted much time and effort to building institutions which protect uh, all of this, all of this edifice that we now occupy, which we call civilization, which we call Western civilization, the Enlightenment, is all one huge error-correcting machine and enables us to continue to improve over time. So we shouldn't tolerate the things that might cause that project to fall into ruin. But at the same time, we should equally emphasize that we must tolerate the things that enable us to criticize for the purpose of improving any of that stuff. Okay. And, and a lot of that, we can't predict uh, which of the criticisms will be right and which of the criticisms will be wrong. But so long as the criticism isn't directed towards destroying a means of error correction, then again, it's, it's pretty much, um, you know, have at it kind of thing. But there's a, there's a personal um, uh, rule of thumb that we should employ as well, which is that when you're engaged in a you know, one-to-one personal conversation with people, you have to be cognizant of whether or not that person wants your criticism or not. Okay, there, there's, a, there's no reason to you know, go into any encounter and just start criticizing either the person, which is a no-no, or criticizing their ideas. If they don't want to engage with you, uh, they don't want to engage in the political discussion, they don't want to engage in uh, the scientific debate or the religious debate, then that, that one should respect that as well. There are better ways to go about improving the world and especially the, the system of ideas that we have than engaging people in, 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 in one-on-one uh, debates when they don't want to be involved, uh, even though um, I'm this proponent of criticism and this proponent of free speech, that doesn't mean you have to go around doggedly criticising people and saying, but criticism is the best thing for you and you need to engage in free speech because it's the only way you're going to improve your life. I don't think that that is at all a useful way to encounter um, other people. But when it comes to just uh, scientific discourse, philosophical discourse, uh, economic discourse in the public arena, then yes, uh, have at it, so to speak, in the, the most polite and uh, uh, sort of respectful way that you can. As one of one of my other hobby horses is um, uh, courtesy, because I think that courtesy and politeness is, is uh, these ideas that especially have descended, uh, in particular, from the British tradition. Uh, of discourse, which enable fast progress, that when people give up on courtesy and politeness and, 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 and sort of having a mutual understanding of how it is that, 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 that 
we can have a conversation that continues uh, in an unbounded way, in an unlimited way, that is best facilitated and occur and it happens most rapidly when we have these agreed standards of politeness because everyone knows what it's like to uh, encounter an impolite person and you don't feel like engaging. And some people have heard over time among, you know, especially in rationalist communities, that they think that politeness somehow gets in the way of having the direct conversation and having a fast. I think it's quite the opposite, in fact. The people are, we don't, we are, we are very poor understanders of our own minds at times. And we don't understand all the ways in which uh, emotions arise within ourselves and why and how. And what courtesy and politeness do is they are the, uh, the, the rules that we have gradually learned over time in our various societies, which enable us to continue to have the conversation uh, off into a, a sort of indefinite resolution, uh, which if we did away with those things, if we did away with the, the politeness heuristics and courtesy and that kind of thing, the conversation just comes to a stop because one or both people end up getting offended. So uh, this, is my, this is my reason for saying that manners are important and continue to be important and, and, and people should be enculturated into a, a good-mannered society because it just helps to oil the gears of progress, so to speak. Thank you so much, Brett. I think that's probably a good place to to end. Um, unless there's something you feel that uh, you think is really important to say that I haven't given you a chance to say. No, I think that um, we, we've covered everything. I, I I hope I didn't seem to. Well, not uh, everything. There's many, <laughs> many, many things in your work we haven't covered, um, uh, and we. I think we could easily have a whole another whole another podcast episode. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm cognizant of your time and also, also my brain is getting a little bit tired, um, <laughs> to be honest. Well, well, I, well I, I won't rate. We'll, we'll leave for another conversation. We'll leave all my critiques of Bayesianism for another time. But, uh, if people uh, do want that, cause I know that your last episode will have been with, uh, the excellent Stephen Pinker, who was a great proponent of Bayesianism and um, that style of reasoning about the world. I, I am a, a critic of that particular mode of, uh, of trying to come to knowledge, but people can perhaps go to my website or perhaps look forward to a future conversation uh, with yourself about that particular. Wonderful. I will, I will link to that on your website. Um, and there are a lot of other topics as well, the stuff on morality and on education that's particularly important or interesting to me. And I'll also link to your, um, uh, your series on Pinker's book, Rationality, which I think was absolutely fascinating uh, so that people can see both sides of that kind of debate. And uh, thank you so much for joining me, Brett. Thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun. Have a wonderful week, everyone. You have been listening to Two for Tea a podcast hosted by me, Iona Italia, and produced in association with ARIO magazine with the assistance of sound engineer Justin Ward. Show notes are provided by Daniel Sharp. If you enjoyed this episode, share it widely, leave a review on your favourite podcast app, and please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash ARIO, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash 2 for tea. Have a wonderful week.